0: Savor 2011. Coverage by Craft Beer Radio from Friday, June 3rd. Private
1: Tasting Salon. A tasting with Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada.
2: My name is Ginger Johnson. I have women enjoying beer. I'm a beer educator and diplomat, and I have the pleasure of educating women more about beer and getting more of the uh, less than 70 percent, well, less than 30 percent of the population of women that enjoy beer, Um, And then I get to work with great people um, in front of us here to help the beer community better market beer to women. Sierra Nevada does a phenomenal job, and I'm not just saying that because (coughs) Ken's sitting next to me. So a couple things we'll run through here first. Of course, Saver is in its fourth year. Outstanding. It was started by the Brewers Association, the industry organization, uh, the nonprofit that um, supports the craft brewing community. And so we're very glad to be here and we're really glad you're here. We hope you keep coming back. This year marks the first time that there's been two nights. In the preceding years, of course, there's only been one night. So we've we've doubled the whammy, so to speak, and we're excited that more and more people. And they sold out within, I think, less than an hour, wasn't it?
1: 15 minutes. 15
2: minutes. Yeah, that's less than an hour. (laughs) Much to the lament of the other thousands of people that wanted to come, but it's still double what we've got. Um, so, Savor is brought to you by the Brewers Association, which we're thankful for. They also put on some other great events, the Great American Beer Festival. Has anybody been there? There's some knowing nods in the room. That's in Denver every year. This will be the 30th year this year. Um, we'll probably go through at least 50,000 consumers in three different public sessions. It's, it's an absolutely incredibly fun time if you've not been. And if you have been, go back. It's a great thing, um, and I'm sure Sierra Nevada will be there again, of course.
1: Uh, I was at the very first one. Yes,
2: you were. That's right. And that wasn't even in Denver. It was in, in was Boulder. it in Boulder. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Outstanding. Um, another uh, event I want to tell you about, or rather a website, is craftbeer.com. And if you have not heard of craftbeer.com, it's an outstanding resource put out by the Brewers Association also. And I'm not, once again, just saying that. I reference it all the time. Highly educational, very navigable, loaded with great information. One of my favorite buttons is the beer and food button, uh, because beer and food together is just, I don't know if it's better than just beer plain, but it's certainly a wonderful thing, So, and it helps a lot of people enjoy the beer. We want to thank our saver um, sponsors and and helpers this evening. Of course, we've got great staff in this room. They're going to do a great job taking good care of you, uh, and uh, our... um, Our people that make it possible include the Rays Beverage Group, Brewery Omegang, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Sam Adams, CraftBeer.com, Allegash Brewing Company, The Brooklyn Brewery, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company... Victory Brewing Company, Crosby & Baker Limited, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, Oak Beverages, and Spiegelau, which is that lovely glassware that's in the back, and it's extraordinary. It's important to have the right glassware for your beer. So thanks to all those uh, who helped make it possible. This will be a podcast also that's available on CraftBeer.com, so you can share it with all your friends and say, hey, I was in the audience. Uh, We love it when you share. Of course, just like great beer, great communication helps the machine keep going forward. So, with uh, very little further ado, I'm going to introduce our fantastic and gracious guests this evening. Um, Sitting to my right and your left is Father Thomas, and he is from the New Clairvaux. Did I say that right? Excellent. Monastery. And we are extraordinarily happy. This is an unexpected surprise um, and a very, very special treat. And uh, you'll learn all about Father Thomas and why he is sitting here in the room with us tonight. And on my left is Ken Grossman, the founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, a gracious and all-around great man uh, who has helped pioneer and get the craft beer movement where it is today. So um, with no further ado... These gentlemen are going to lead the evening. I get to be the heavy. Um, So your questions are welcome at any time. When you do ask a question, I will repeat it just to let you know because the recording for the podcast needs to go through the microphone. So even though we can all hear each other in this room, the people that might listen to it later might not be able to catch that. So um, if you ask a question, um, I'll just repeat it, and the gentleman will answer it, and we'll wrap up in an hour, and, and you're off and running to more great beer. So thank you for being here, and uh, Ken and Father Thomas, take it away.
1: Well, I'll start things off. A uh, uh, little bit of, of our history. We started uh, 31 years ago. Um, I founded uh, what then was one of the, the handful of craft brewers in the United States, um, in, in the early uh, 70s, actually 1969, I started home brewing. Ended up opening a homebrew supply store in the mid 70s, and went and visited uh, what was then uh, one of two small breweries in America, or sort of new small breweries in America, uh, the Anchor Brewery and then New Albion Brewery uh, in Sonoma, which was the first home brewer gone pro. And I saw that and decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I sold my homebrew shop and started to write a business plan and, and started brewing uh, my pale ale back in 1980. Um, at that point in time, there were only 40 breweries uh, in America, total breweries, and that included all the, the major breweries and, and all the small ones. And today, as, as you can see out here, we've got uh, way more than that, and there's literally close to 2,000 craft breweries now operating in the U.S. So the, uh, the United States beer industry has gone through dramatic change uh, from – uh, almost uh, the same amount of breweries before prohibition to uh, less than a thousand breweries after prohibition uh, and down to that low point of 40, and now back up to, to almost 2,000. So there's been a huge beer revolution that's happened in the United States, and uh, we've been a part of that from pretty much the beginning. So it's been uh, very exciting to watch uh, beer culture in America, the knowledge about beer and beer styles and, and beer styles around the world. Uh, when I was first uh, starting the brewery, I actually went on a sort of a global uh, tour and toured breweries of england germany and belgium and, and went over and visited some of the the trappist breweries back in the very early 80s and um the, the amount of styles of beer that were brewed around the world were you know, very eye-opening for somebody who had lived in the united states and uh, was pretty much aware of the brewing tradition that we had which was basically one style of beer uh, a light lager style so uh... taking that trip opened my eyes to uh, to a whole range of beers uh, we came up with what we thought would be our flagship, our, our pale ale, and that was really the mainstay of our company for for many, many years. And as the the consumer uh, consumers like yourselves became much more educated about beer and beer styles and and all the different things that could be done with beers, different hops, different malts, different yeasts, um, that we started to expand as well. So one of the styles that uh, we've played with over the years has has been uh, wheat beers and. Uh, We've done some Saisons and we've done some Belgian beers um, but never really in a a serious fashion that uh, we wanted to take to market. We would do them and sell them at our restaurant but it was very limited production. Um, I I was contacted by the monastery by uh, uh, a group up there with uh, Father Thomas and Father Paul Mark who's the um, head abbot currently. Father Thomas was actually the abbot for how many years? Uh,
0: Thirty-eight years.
1: Thirty-eight years he was the abbot of the monastery. he looks like he's in his uh, 50s or 60s, but uh, uh, tell the group how old you are. I'm
0: 77. Um, they, have,
1: they, have, they have forced retirement. That's yeah. right. Uh, they, they have forced retirement from being an abbot. So at 75, he had a step down from being the head abbot, but he's still at, at the monastery. Uh, anyway, the group contacted us and, and asked us if we would help with a... Uh, a project they were trying to put together, which was to restore a, an ancient chapter house that um, has a, a very interesting history. And I think I'll let Father Thomas tell a bit about his history and his discovering the stones. And, and uh, the beer we're going to taste tonight was a, uh, um, it came out of that, that thought and that project in a way that we could work collaboratively together and help the monastery with their mission and, uh, and produce a, a unique beer. So um, I'll, I'll let Father Thomas uh, kick things off, and then I'll talk a bit more about the project.
0: Well, we're here because of over the beer. But I got my first start in drinking beer when I was one year old. (laughs) My father was a great beer drinker, and of course his friends were, and they were at the World's Fair. And all of a sudden, they were having, you know, playing cards and whatnot in the one room, and they realized that I was terribly silent. And they began to look for me, and they found me out in the kitchen draining the beer bottles. (laughs) Over the beer is a, a, a very unique beer, and what makes a beer is uh, the brewer, the brewery, and a story. And this beer has, uh, I think, three stories. It has a story of a great brewery, Sierra Nevada. It has uh, is being done in the tradition of Trappist beers in Belgium, although it is not a traposphere, Nevertheless, it is in that tra- uh, tradition. And the story is about a monastery in Spain that was meant to be a royal monastery. Uh, and in this monastery is a, a room, like a community room, called a chapter room, a chapter house. And this building was done in Gothic architecture. It's very unique, something extremely special. And that monastery made its way to California. And I happened to have the opportunity to see that once it got in California, it made its way up to Northern California, near Chico.
1: Can I interrupt a little bit, just to, to back up a little bit. So this monastery uh, was in Spain. And uh, William Randolph Hearst, I don't know if you want to mm-hmm. tell the story of that, but it was built in the 12th century.
0: 12th century by Alfonso the 8th. Uh, now, what's interesting about this, this building is that most of the chapter houses are done in Romanesque style. Those of you who have a little bit of uh, architectural experience, but this is Gothic and it's rare. It's very beautiful. There are three Cistercian chapter houses in the United States. One, Romanesque, is in the cloisters in New York, it's from France, uh, 12th century. The second one is Romanesque. It's down in North Miami, which is an Episcopal parish at the moment, Sacramania. That's Romanesque. This one is um, the third one at Vina near Chico. It's Gothic and very beautiful, a very beautiful portal. Uh, How I came about this uh, discovery was... um, uh, I entered the monastery very young in Kentucky, Gethsemane. Some of you may have heard of it. I don't know if Shortly you have or you not. Uh, Shortly after you started drinking beer? <laughs> That's right, yes. Uh, Thomas Merton, perhaps, is another name you might be familiar with. I don't know. He once gave... I was a young monk, uh, and uh, he gave a course on uh, art and architecture, especially in our order, how significant it was. And then... Uh, When I was 22, the monastery was making a foundation in California, and I was destined for that foundation. So on the way out, I had an opportunity after I landed in San Francisco to um, get a tour through the Golden Gate Park. And the driver said, here's this Cistercian Monastery that Randolph Hearst brought over, and it's sitting there, and maybe someday it will be restored. And I thought to myself, I would like to have that monastery <laughs> for my own community. I never forgot that. Sixties uh, and seventies came with the cultural revolution. The monastery was vandalized on several occasions. Five, actually. I had Five fires, and, and then the hippies got in there and so on and so forth. And it was just a, what was this neatly stacked up bunch of stones and crates now became scattered all over the Golden Gate Park. And I, re- I, I would follow what was happening and what was not happening to this mon- this uh, building, trying to get a hold of it. And then I got interested in it when I became uh, abbot, approached the uh, museum people. And, of course, then they got interested in it, decided, well, we'll, we'll do something with it, and it was going back and forth. But uh, the success came... In my favor, with the earthquake, the famous earthquake that San Francisco had, I think it was 89, somewhere around there, the late 80s. Uh, they decided then that um, the museum, which was, had this building, uh, would um, become a modern museum. And this was an ancient uh, piece of art, so they didn't, weren't interested in it. And then we had a long going back and forth on just how the city would give this uh, to the monastery you know, church and state, so on and so forth. At one point, it was going to be kind of an indefinite loan in which our little community of 23 <laughs> monks would insure the city of San Francisco in case anybody got hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, forget about that. <laughs> so finally, they decided, the lawyers got on the case and said, look, if we put it up for auction and nobody bids on it, it's yours. Of course, who's going to take a 12th century building that has been terribly vandalized and is a big question mark if it can be restored. No one bid for it, and so we got it. And I told the city, I says, look, I have the history behind this. First place, I'm, I'm a monk of the same order, Cistercian order. That's part of my heritage. You know, if you have heirlooms that belong to your ancestors a few centuries back, you want to hold on to it, I said, that belongs to us. So, I have the history. Secondly, as a monk, I can get the expertise freely given that you'd have to pay for. <laughs> Thirdly, I have the land. And you don't have the land, really. You'd have to buy land. I have it already. I can do it, and you can't do it. I was simply a bit naive because it's rather complicated <laughs> in restoration, but it's well on its way. So,. Uh, the stones came up and uh, it took a lot of work. Fortunately, we had a couple of excellent uh, German stonemasons who were able to figure out, it was like putting together a puzzle because we really had no plans, pieces were missing, laid the portal out, so on and so forth. And then as construction began, we were up against the uh, earthquake code in Northern California and in California in general. And, of course, this building is built to last uh, even into eternity. If there's an earthquake, I'm sure it won't fall because it's incredible. <laughs> uh, the interior size would be about double of this room. Oh. And, uh, th- <laughs> about, yeah, about the double of this room. And the foundation is poured solid, two feet of concrete with 42 tons of rebar just in the foundation so that it won't hold it together. But anyway, that's part of the story. So, you know, if you have any questions or not, we were trying to build it. And one day, I uh, had the occasion to meet Ken at a uh, what was it, kind of a garden party or yeah, reception.
1: Some, some local community <laughs> event. A community
0: event. And he uh, suggested that- um,
1: Maybe we should do a beer. That was years ago though. Years we ago, a, we, we
0: should do a-, a beer. I laughed at him <laughs> because I had enough problems with the wine. <laughs> and putting this building together. <laughs> but the new abbot, he is a little more um, aggressive, pers- uh, proactive than I was. So he took Ken up, and um, as I said, this beer that you're going to taste or you, you have here, it's an excellent beer.
1: Well, we, it- we took Father uh, Thomas on a, on a trip <laughs> uh, to Belgium to uh, visit uh, the Trappist monasteries, and the, the, the many monasteries around the world actually have uh survived or, or uh, allowed their um, their orders to to prosper or have an income stream from brewing beer uh the benedictines and and the, the trappists so if you go to germany some of the famous breweries were um, monastery breweries in belgium they still have a tradition of uh, small monasteries and some of them fewer than 10, 10 people producing some uh globally very famous trappist uh, trappist beers orval and Chimay and West Letterin and West Mall, um, so we went on a, a pilgrimage to go visit uh, um, as many of these monasteries as we could, and and talk to their brewers and just uh, try to communicate that uh, you know we were going to try to do something to help the monastery out. We were not going to be producing a Trappist beer since we are not uh, Trappists. Um, we can call this a, an Abbey beer, an Abbey style beer. Uh, if they decide at some point in the future to brew at the monastery, they could call it a Trappist brewed in in Vina. Uh, But since we're brewing it uh, ourselves, we're giving them proceeds to help with their project. uh, And that relationship actually is is fairly um, common. I don't know if common's the right word, but there's a number of those kinds of relationships with brewers uh, and monasteries around the world where they they help with uh, fund some projects. So we thought it was an interesting endeavor for us to to get behind. and, And so we did this pilgrimage to Belgium Uh, And Father Thomas uh, got quite a beer education. Um, He, he, uh, I I think, drank a a little bit of wine, but not much beer before our trip. Um, But he was a trooper, and uh, I I took uh, several of my brewers over, and my brewers... uh, they can uh, enjoy a beer or two. And so uh, <laughs> uh, we, we had many late nights uh, sampling all the local Belgian beers we went to brew. It's called
2: research for you, we right? Did, we did a lot of research. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh
1: But, but having uh, Father Thomas uh, with us allowed us to go visit some of the the really fantastic, uh, small, traditional um, monastery breweries that are, are still um, brewing, um, you know, the way they brewed for many, many years. And, and um, some of them are very, very small, the uh, West Letteran was the smallest we visited, and it's uh, rated number one on Beer Advocate. It's very, very scarce in, in part. Um, but at the monastery, it's, it's a fairly common, reasonably priced beer. It's, it's not a very expensive beer there. It might sell for 20 or $50 on the Internet, but there you can buy a bottle for 250 or $3. Um, so they want to have beer available for local community, and it's, it's uh, developed sort of a cult. So we had a great, uh, great trip, and we we brought Father Thomas to the brewery and and put him through our beer education program. And we have a, a program called Beer Camp, which I'll talk a little about uh, later if we have some time. Um, but actually, spent a few days learning how to brew beer and brewing a batch of beer and and um, going through some of our tasting uh, programs so he could understand a bit about uh, the flavors and complexities that uh, that you can have in beer. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the beer. So we used a traditional Belgian yeast um, from a a brewery that I, I won't mention the name of but it was uh, in the monastic tradition um, and we um, used Belgium uh, candy sugar we imported uh, a bit of the ingredients over from Belgium so our goal was not to copy what they were doing but to, to try to uh, use some of the traditional ingredients we used uh, Canadian malt and some other uh, domestic things and some European hops but we um, We learned a lot that the the brewing style for for Belgian beer is not uh, super sophisticated. It's actually fairly basic and ingredients aren't very sophisticated. They use a fair amount of sugar. Uh, Sugar is frowned upon in uh, countries like Germany, which does not allow it. Uh, But in Belgium during the war, when malt was was tight, they started using more sugar and some sugar and caramelized sugars. And a lot of those sugars contribute to the flavor and complexity of these beers. Um, But really most of it is the yeast and how the fermentation is handled. Um, And again, the the fermentation profiles aren't necessarily complex, but they do a lot of uh, fairly significant aging compared to what an English ale would have. So uh, this beer went through uh, many, many weeks of of fermenting and aging uh, before bottling, and it is bottle conditioned. So the final fermentation also takes place in the bottle. So that's a unique trait that uh, the Trappist beers and and, uh, our brewery, we bottle conditioned from day one. So we are actually the largest bottle conditioning brewery in the world, at least I think we are. Uh, we produce more beer with with you know a fine sediment in it than anybody, uh, but it's part of that flavor and complexity. And as the beer ages and and matures, and even months and months in the bottle, that yeast can contribute to additional aroma and flavor and characteristics. So it does add to the complexity as the beer ages.
2: Is this a beer that you would want people to age, Ken, or is this a beer you would want people to enjoy right away, or a little bit of both?
1: Uh, I would say uh, a little bit of both. Um, I I normally, for the the styles of beer that we've been uh, traditionally brewing, our our pale ales and and, uh, IPAs, those beers I really prefer fresh. Um, I mean, they're all about hops, and and hops degrade fairly quickly. A few months in the bottle and the hop aromas have really dissipated and and oxidized and degraded. Um, So IPAs and those styles are normally, in my opinion, best fresh. There are some consumers who like our our celebration, our Christmas Mm -hmm. beer, a year old, Mm -hmm. and they like the more mellowed and and sort of caramelized and slightly um, um, subdued uh, flavor uh, compounds. Um, This beer... uh, since it's bottle condition, it actually spent uh, a month or so at the brewery aging in the bottle before we shipped it. Uh, so when we shipped it, it was definitely ready to drink. Um, but it's changed with time, and it will continue to evolve. And, and the, the Belgians um, uh, like to age some of their beers a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, breweries like Orval, uh, we went out uh, and had lunch uh, with, with some folks from Orval, and they took us to a restaurant where they hand-selected a two-year-old bottle for us. Mm. So in, in their opinion, you know, that's sort of where it was at its prime. Um, and in their case, they're using different kinds of yeast, using retinomyces as well as um, as, right. as regular. Um regular
2: use. Okay, great. If you have not visited the Sierra Nevada site lately, they've got some beautiful, beautiful pictures of the collaboration as well. The stones and uh, I was telling Ken before we started, if you do a little research online about the monastery and history, it's it's really a great story and, and the story is definitely a big part of what brings people into craft beer and what keeps them there. So I encourage you, Sierra Nevada has a wonderful site and the story in this collaboration is fantastic. And I Just have to tell you, Ken, that your pale ale was one of the very first craft beers for me, which was kind of interesting. (laughs) So that's kind of neat. So, yeah.
1: Any questions or or comments on the beer at this point? We have other beers to try. So, depending on on your um, your thoughts about uh, Ovala and and a little more history. So, the the ranch that the monastery is on uh, is in a town called Vina, which is uh, just a little bit north of Chico. And Vina got its name because it was, uh, at one point, the largest winery and grape growing area in the world. Um, and uh, um, Leland, Stanford, Leland, Stanford. Leland Stanford of Stanford University owned the property Leland. and, and built, headquarters. Uh, built a huge uh, winery and later a brandy complex. Uh, the, the wine, uh, the, the temperature up in that area gets pretty hot, and the, the wine grapes probably weren't ideal. And so the wines didn't probably sell as well as he was anticipating, so he started making brandy. So the, the monastery uh, purchased the, the old winery complex, which has just beautiful arch ceilings like this, very thick um, insulated stone and uh, brick. Uh, brick, two,
0: two and a half acres of vaulted brick ceiling that yeah, so one Stanford built for a wine cellar. Incredible.
1: So, is
2: that the the pictures that are on the site? Then is that an example you'll see arch stones? Yeah, I think that's the so that, chapter that, house. That's the chapter is that house. the chapter that's house? Chap- okay, but
0: that's yeah, vaulted also. But, but the winery also. is is where uh, Stanford age, uh, kept his wine wine cellar, and it's it's covers about two and a half acres, vaulted brick, two bricks thick. Incredible structure, absolutely incredible. I might mention mention that the um, on the brochure here. This is supposed to be a kind of a contemplative beer.
2: A lot of theology in that glass, <laughs> <I'm> brother.
0: <laughs> however, now, why would it be called contemplative? And then I begin to realize that when you take a drink, you want more. <laughs> so one you experience of something of the divine, you want more of it. <laughs> That's why it's a great beer. <laughs>
2: How do you all like that? Who is, has anybody in this room had this before this evening? Just a couple. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Keep drinking it and keep sharing it with friends. And
0: the Saison that's coming out is superb.
1: Yeah, so, we just bottled Saison this last week. And so, we're doing three beers this year in this series. And we didn't really know how well this was going to go. And, and um, so, we wanted it to sort of go a little bit slowly. We, we're doing three different beers. Um, the second one's the Saison, which uh, we started working on months ago, and, and um, we, we got it into the bottle this last week. It is also bottle conditioned. And, again, the Saison uh, develops a lot of that character uh, in the bottle. And Saisons uh, were a little bit lighter and, in some cases, sort of uh, regarded as a farmhouse-style lighter beer for summers, a little bit more refreshing, a little bit crisper. So it's not quite as malty or sweet as this. it's a bit yeah. drier. Um, uses a different yeast strain. So, again, as I said, a lot of what is in Belgian beers has a lot to do with the fermentation profiles and the yeast that are used for it. And so the saison uh, imparts a different characteristic completely than, than uh, the Double does. Um, and it we w- would like to age it for a minimum of six weeks in the bottle at our brewery before we ship. And And, again, it's another one which will continue to evolve. But at the time we... We ship it. Uh, it'll be ready to drink, certainly, but it, it will change with complexity and character. And
2: if it's not a beer to age, is it uh, the general rule, Ken, to drink that beer within 120 days of packaging?
1: Um, you know, as far as age of beer in bottles, um, it's such a complex topic, and I'll talk just a minute about it. But um, when a beer gets put into the bottle um, and sealed off, the cap that, that seals it is, has a plastic liner in it. And most people you know, don't, wouldn't think that oxygen actually is migrating back through that cap liner. Um, Dalton's law of partial pressures, uh, <laughs> since there's no oxygen in the top, oxygen actually keeps traveling through the cap liner. And uh, it was something that wasn't that well understood in, until I think the, sometime in the 70s when we had analytical equipment that could really measure things like oxygen migration. Uh, so oxygen ingress through the cap is a big one. And we use a, a, a quite special bottle cap liner that's made in Germany. Um, which is the the best oxygen barrier material we 've found um, it 's not perfect, and it has uh, and all bottle caps also do what 's called scalp, which is they absorb aromas into the plastics as well um, so once it gets put into a bottle, um, it starts to lose it starts to oxidize a little, and some aroma is absorbed into the, the cap liner. If the beer is kept at sixty or seventy or eighty degrees, that happens much more rapidly, and so the beer ages much, much quicker. Uh, so if you really want ideal storage conditions, put it in the refrigerator. Um, one of, like our pale ale, after six, eight, nine months, if it's stored properly at uh, you know, 38, 40 degrees, uh, will still taste quite fresh at okay. 9 months.
2: But it never lasts
1: that long no.
2: in somebody's uh, fridge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but conversely, if that, same beer, if that same beer is at 80 degrees in somebody's garage, uh, it'll taste older after 2 weeks or 3 sure. weeks. Right. And so temperature is a huge component right. to aging. Um, the, the cork finish, and we went away from twist-off caps a, a number of years ago when we couldn't find a twist-off cap material that really was nearly as good as the pry-off cap material. Um, we did a lot of analysis on corks and different brands of corks and um, wax corks and synthetic corks, and, and uh, corks are way worse than twist-off caps well, really? So, um, because they're more porous. Again, oxygen goes right through that, that cork material um, and can oxidize, uh, oxidize the beer right through the cork. So uh, the beers that we put in a cork-finished bottle are ones that can tolerate oxygen. Okay. And so a beer like, thank you, a beer like this um, that um, gains some complexity with aging, um, it can handle a bit of oxygen. It will continue to, to evolve and, and change character. I wouldn't put a, um, uh, this is coming next. Not, not now. No? You
2: no, don't want to no. wait on that? Yeah, I want
1: to okay. wait on this. all right,
2: we'll wait on that. Never mind. Uh,
1: uh, um, the, uh, the beers we put with a cork finish would be ones that could tolerate some oxygen ingress, and ones okay. we would put with a cap would be okay. ones that can't. So excellent,
2: because, of course, oxygen and sunlight are two primary enemies of beer, oxygen, correct? Oxygen, sunlight, and heat. Yes. Okay. And heat. All right, excellent. Triumvirate. Wonderful. Yep. Can I ask a question? Are there any test batches that might have some age on them? or do not have a good
1: idea of what this might There are some test batches. Yes, we started brewing test batches months and months ago. Um, uh, quite good at this point. <laughs> <laughs>
2: they keep testing it, right? <laughs> Excellent. Um,
1: we have ways to do some prediction on that as well. Um, we, we have a fairly sophisticated research laboratory, and so we can analyze uh, for a lot of aging compounds. And uh, some beers we can predict will age much quicker than others. But this beer... Uh, is quite stable at this point so I'm thinking again storage conditions are going to be a factor but cool stored um, a, a year or two no problem and some people may even prefer them at a year or two again it's a personal preference uh, um, it will get whiny it will start developing uh, you know, different kinds of aromas some sherry characters and, and things that will will change but if, if you buy most of the Belgian beers in this country they're going to be 6, 8, 9, 12, 2 years old three years old, whatever. Um, and uh, it's a style that can handle that kind of age pretty well. Yes. you have a waiting line for your research <laughs> uh, For a job? Um, just just a drink. Oh, just a drink. No, we actually have a sensory department, uh, and if you're in Chico, we, would, uh, we could interview to come sit on the panel. Um, we actually put the tasters through training, quite a bit of training, and then you get sort of validated that you can detect, uh, you know, various uh, threshold levels of, of various compounds. Um, not everybody's taste buds are equal, and women <laughs> tend to have better ones than men, uh, and younger people tend to have better ones than older people. But um, um, the, uh, the, the, yeah. um, the... you know a full, a full sensory sort of an introductory course is about a full week um, just to, uh, to get the nuances and to be able to detect, uh, you know, sort of the common beer characteristics, off flavors, uh, attributes, so it's, you (laughs) got to pay a lot, we have
2: another question, yes Yes, sir, I have a mild obsession
0: with your Bigfoot Ale, and I know, I think it's heading into its 26th or 27th year, so it's
1: probably one of your first brews that you made, could you walk us quickly through your inspiration for that, and how you kind of came up with that recipe? Sure, actually the name came from uh, my best from elementary school through high school. Um, We were sitting around. I wanted to brew this this strong barley wine. I mentioned I'd gone to Europe and and had sort of sampled what was over there. Um, And in England, I did drink uh, Thomas Hardy and some of the other uh, big barley wines. And and Fritz at uh, at Anchor had done Old Foghorn, which uh, I loved. And and I bought actually my first case of Old Foghorn from Fritz in 1978 before I started the brewery. Uh, I took a tour of his brewery when it was still in his old little building. And uh, he, he sold me this case, and there was a couple people around, and they were complaining because the beer cost, I don't know, $15 a case, and it was only, only in seven-ounce bottles back then. And they said, I, I only get seven ounces, and it costs uh, whatever. And Fritz said, you know, it costs me twice as much to make this as I'm selling it for. Um, but so I was aware of that, of that style of beer, and, and I'd had also um, – um, there was uh, a, sort of a, a little bit of a long history of uh, some breweries making strong – Beers for gifts for holiday season. Valentine's mm-hmm. um, actually uh, in this country, Valentine's uh, had a, a a special bottling they would do of of wood aged beer that was never not sold. I suppose it was only given to beer distributors and friends. And I got a hold of a bottle of that. I have mm-hmm. a bottle in my collection. And they did that in the 40s and 50s. Um, so I, I was aware of this tradition of strong uh, beers for uh, you know, wintering. And and um, so we brewed uh, a small batch. And I, I actually sold it with an illegal label, as it turned out, the first year, because <laughs> I called it Bigfoot Strong Ale, um, and you can't call a beer strong in, in the U.S. because of the TTB, and, I, I, and we were only selling in California. We didn't need TTB uh, permission on the label, since back then it was just a, a state thing, uh, and later on we realized, oh, boy, you know, we, we, we shouldn't have done that, so the next year it got changed to, to Bigfoot Barley Wine. Um, and I actually got the the TTB to allow barley wine style ales, a designator, because they wouldn't let Fritz do it when he tried to do it. And I convinced him it's, you know, it's barley wine style, it's not wine, because they were, said it was confusing. Um, and that was in uh, – we, we actually celebrated our 25th year on uh, – we actually had already done 26 years when I did that, uh, because the first year was a little different brand, but – um, so anyway, I wanted to do something. I did 80 cases the, the first year of that uh, strong ale. And
2: um, How many cases doing... of Bigfoot are you making now? You know,
1: we, we really haven't uh, lifted the oh, – we're making more than that. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it's one we intentionally keep scarce. It's really difficult to brew. We waste a ton of ingredients. Uh, it's really hard on our wastewater treatment plant because we can only use really the first runnings for that, mm. for that beer. Um, so we haven't really pushed Bigfoot as a, as a beer we want to make and sell a lot of.
2: Every president I go buy
1: as much as I can. I well, around all the
2: liquor stores.
1: it's one that, again, some people like fresh. I do. Uh, I, I like to drink it when it's first six months. Other people, you know, do vintages of it. And we actually have uh, uh, vintages back into the, I think we still have some kegs from the 80s. Um, wow. So uh, wow. uh, so we, we have uh, some old ones. We've been trying now to, to plan and hold on to a, a few every, every year. I'll get you myself. myself. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs>
2: Any other questions before we go on yep. yes, sir uh,
1: you, you know very favorably I, again it, it's uh, um, so we didn't try to copy any one particular beer, so I mean it, there's a, a family, and all of them are a bit different um, but uh, I, I think quite favorably um, and, and the age factor is an important one in this one. So as it ages, it's getting closer to probably the Belgian ones that you get here that are already aged because they've been in transit so long. And, and uh, uh, so as it gets uh, some heat, age, all the negative things that I just talked about, that will make it closer to the Belgian beers that you, uh, <laughs> that you get over here. It, and in this style of beer, some of that's positive. So I'm not suggesting that, that all that's negative. This can handle the oxygen. It can handle a little bit of caramelizing, a little bit of uh, sherry, uh, all that adds to sort of the the flavor profile um, you know back uh, when I first started some of the the styles of beer that are now becoming increasingly popular, the sour beers and the beers using wild yeast and bacteria um, that was uh, the, the antithesis of what I wanted to brew It was you know these beers are wild they 're sort of infected the, the The brewer sort of loses control of the process uh, today. those styles are now becoming very popular, and there 's uh, you know, a whole group of people who love sour beers and some of the bacteria that make them sour, they're not harmful. Uh, They're what make yogurt yogurt and and some other things. Um, But uh, we're starting to play around with some of those. My my son over here is doing a a beer with Britannomyces and uh, with uh, Vinny from Russian River, who's a a very good sour beer maker. Um, And and he's really pioneered that craft in America. and, And we've, I think, saved a little bit of the, that uh, part of brewing uh, history and culture around the world. When when we started popularizing, not we, but when the craft brewers started popularizing sour beers, it really gave a shot in the arm to uh, some of the Belgian brewers who were having trouble selling their uh, farmhouse styles and their their more challenging styles for many people to drink. And now there's a huge market in the U.S. for these esoteric Belgian beers that (laughs) really were almost out of business uh, five, ten years ago. Um, So it's been a, you know, Full circle, And, and I, I appreciate those beer styles. Again, as a, as a brewer, I don't know that I want a lot of those bacteria in my brewery because you, you can't control some of them as well as you would like. And when they sort of spread out on their own and start making you know, our IPA taste like a sour, that's not good. But uh, uh, as long as, you know, modern hygiene and you pay attention, you can handle that.
2: Mm-hmm. I've got a question right over yep. here.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll talk uh, – uh, we're actually serving a – not a wet-hot version, but a fresh-hot version downstairs today. So we're serving one that we call our Southern Hemisphere Harvest, uh, which is made from hops harvested in New Zealand uh, you know, sort of six months off of our harvest. Um, we started doing – we were the first American brewer that we're aware of uh, 13, 14 years ago now uh, to take hops right out of the field, wet, right off the vine, and brew with them. And it was uh, a friend of ours who has a uh, – History, his family grew hops. He was a hop merchant in England for many years, and he was uh, visiting us one day. and He said, I had this beer once in England where they took the hops right out of the, the field and they put them right in the brew kettle. And why don't you try that? And so, yeah, that sounds like fun.
2: So <laughs> I, I, uh,
1: so I, we contacted one of our hop growers, and we said, We want to do this, and, and we're going to have to fly them down because you've got to brew with them that day. You can't, you, they can't sit because they'll start to sweat and, and mold, and uh, it's, they're really quite fragile right at, at harvest. And so I called my uh, the, the hop grower, and I said, we want to fly down. I can't remember. It was 1,000 pounds or 500 pounds of hops. I think it was maybe 1,000 pounds of hops. And uh, so they said, fine, and uh, put it on UPS uh, um, next day or same day or whatever um, out of Yakima to Chico. And it um, mm-hmm. turned out they, they took up such a big space, they had to get a second plane. Uh, <laughs> so the, the bill that I paid for hops for that first brew, we only made, like, Fifty or eighty barrels or something—it was thousands of dollars to to fly these ho- ho- these hops down. Um, so we started doing it. Everybody loved it. I mean, the, the 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 normal process of picking hops is you pick them, you immediately dry them in a kiln, and, and uh, once the the moisture content's down to about eight percent, then you can press them and bale them. And then many brewers take those and then reprocess them. They turn them into extracts or pellets. And we use whole hops only, so we never brew with the extracts or pellets. Um, but when they're wet, they're super. F- Vulnerable and fragile, so you really got to brew in them that day. Um, so, we've been doing that now for 13 years, and it's a super popular beer. Uh, not going through the drying process doesn't drive off a lot of those ar- aromatic oils. Hops are very aromatic when they're first harvested, like mint or something. And so, uh, the less you heat them, the less you've lost of that oil. Um, It is. And we started, uh, I had another notion to do something stupid, which was actually to start growing my own hops and barley to make that beer. So we actually have nine acres of hops in Chico Chico at the brewery um, that are organically grown, and we have about 45 acres of organic barley, and we make a a beer called uh, Estate, which is all, all the stuff we grow ourselves, and uh, we started doing that uh, several years ago. You
2: know, you're making Father Thomas nervous because he's now thinking that he's going to have to plant a hop yard.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually. <laughs> exactly. I, I, actually, we tried to get to the monastery to raise some barley for this project um, because we thought that would be a nice yeah. connection. And you used to grow barley, I think, up there, right? Yeah. Um and barley, the malting barley varieties grow pretty good in Chico, so that's something we could do. Unfortunately, there's no malt house in Chico, so we have to ship the barley to be malted, and we're planning on building a malt house in the next few years.
2: Excellent. Thank you for the questions. We've got 15 minutes We've got left. 15
1: minutes, so we have so. A, a couple of things we could do. We have four other um, beer camp beers.
2: <laughs> Not that you have to plow through all
1: four. Um, and these, I'll just talk about beer camp for a moment. So uh, we started... Uh, a number of years ago, I wanted to have a small brewery, again, because as we grew, I went from my 300-gallon batch size to a 3,000-gallon batch size. And so uh, we built a, uh, a research brewery that, that makes 300-gallon batches, and we do a lot of brewing research. We also started bringing in um, our distributors, our, or some store owners, uh, restaurant owners, uh, to learn how to make beer. And so we would actually let them design a beer, a concept for a beer, uh, learn how to make beer they'd work with our brewmasters and, and uh, we would then they'd spend two days and they'd brew that batch of beer we would uh, keg it and then we would bring it back to their hometown and they could sell it in their restaurant or bar so we started this program we called beer camp uh, a number of years ago uh, and we've since opened that up to the public and and uh, you can uh, uh, you can enter a contest and it's mm-hmm. running right now to uh, to get a winter trip to chico uh, we're going to do 12 people outside of california and 12 people in california uh, we did this last year for the first time. Uh, and you can, again, design um, <laughs> the beer yourself, get to name of the beer, the, the whole nine yards. And we, we decided to pick a few of them and actually sell them. So uh, we have a Best of Beer Camp pack here, which has got four of, of the Beer Camp beers. Actually, three of them are really Beer Camp beers, and one of them was a collaboration with a, a small German brewery that we uh, were friends with. Uh, we called it a beer camp, but in reality it was a little more than that. So we have four of those beers. We have not, not enough time to try those. So um, what would be the next thing? We, the, we have a, a, a Wiesenbach, or Wiesenbach, which is a Bach-style wheat beer, which is quite tasty. We have a, a juniper ale. Uh, we have a double IPA, and we have a California common, which is a, a lager uh, yeast but a, a warm fermented beer like an ale would be. So, I'm going to th- actually, I think, take votes. Uh, we're going to open.
2: Do you want them to just randomly pass out what they yeah, have? Yeah, I guess we could do that. Does so, that we'll, that work okay? I guess we'll
1: pass all four of them out. You, can, you, can, uh, pick and you choose. can pick and choose. They're all great, of, of yeah. course, as you yeah. know.
2: So, so, out of those 20, you had 20 people at last year's beer camp, is that right? Or many
1: uh, We had many 20 people have? last year, 10 from okay. California, and 10 from And camp. how many
2: people actually applied? To participate in a beer camp? Uh,
1: hundreds. I would you know. imagine. And this year there will probably be thousands because okay. once we didn't do a very good job of marketing. Okay. So all you have to do to apply, there's no strings attached. You have to uh, somehow convince us that you're worthy of going. <laughs> so um, make a movie, a video. Uh, you know, some people did it on their cell phone, and it was good enough to, to get them in. Uh, some people were a lot more sophisticated. No kids. We want to show this on the Internet. We can't have kids in the, in the, the beer commercials or beer uh, things. Um, and uh, go to our website beercamp I think BeerCamp.org or no dot com I mean we um, 'll go to SierraNevada.com dot com and you can go to the beer camp link, and so you could get a chance to come and if you live in California, we can 't pay your expenses because of state law. I think yeah. most other states will give you plane tickets and, and hotels and all that so um, that 's a
2: ten barrel system. is that right, Ken yep. that you brew it on? Yep. Has anybody taken the tour of Sierra Nevada before? Oh, what are you waiting for? <laughs> it's an incredible it's a little, it's a tour. Ways away, I it is a little ways away. When you get to Chico area, I highly recommend it. It's beautiful. Eat off the floor, clean brewery, and it's uh, the the people there will treat you like the queens and kings that you are. So, what else do you want to share with us about Beer Camp or about the? Uh, now, I want to know where the name came from for this beer. Can you tell would, us that? I
0: would mention one thing about the the beer is that if you don't like beer. You should still get a bottle of it and just run your finger over the label,
1: <laughs>
0: because it's embossed. It's a lovely, lovely feeling.
1: Uh, as far as where the name comes, you want to talk a little bit about Father. Robert? Well, the name
0: came from a, uh, the monastery in Spain. It's called Santa Maria de Ovila. It's ninety miles north uh, east of Madrid on the way to Saragotha. And they think Ovila is a form of sheepfold. Of sheep, sheep fo- uh, uh, where you bring your sheep in at night, in oh, a, a okay. sheepfold, Okay. Uh, sheep, a sheep um, uh, corral, yeah. Okay. And th- that's what they think, for, it came from Ovila. Huh. The accent is on Ovila. We, we argued about the, uh, we didn't <laughs> argue, we discussed about the label because they wanted to dot the I. And everyone pronounces it Oliva, but so it's, oh, it's Ovila. <laughs> but ever, nevertheless, the label is is well worth uh, experiencing if you don't like bear.
1: <laughs> and you've got they wouldn't be here if they didn't like bear. That's I mean.
2: right. Now you've got two more in that series coming up, correct?
1: Uh, we have the say song which is coming out, the say song? and then we have a quad for and the end of the quad. year.
2: And a quad, okay, excellent. Any other questions for these fine gentlemen right now? Yes, sir.
1: Um, in the next five years, Father Thomas plans on uh, becoming a brewmaster. Not, All right. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's still got a lot of youth left. So, you know. Yes, sir. Um, it's something we've talked to him about, and, and uh, maybe maybe someday we'll help them put a little brewery there. But, yeah.
0: We will have, I think in, some, in, in the future, perhaps near future, we will have a satellite brewery of Sierra Nevada.
1: Uh, you know, there are uh, one of one of the problems with the Trappist uh, uh, monasteries right now is they don't have a lot of people in them. If, globally, I think uh, what Orval had less than twelve yeah. monks left, and it, the facility is enormous. I mean, it's a huge, huge grounds. Yeah. So, any of you want to sign up? They're looking for they're looking for some new monks. Um,
2: you love beer. Become a monk, yeah. right? Indeed. Um, so,
1: anyway, it's manpower, and they do have a winery, so they have a Trappist winery at the, at the monastery currently. Okay,
2: excellent. Yes, sir, you had a question. I've got Are
1: we to get a bottle of Yep. We are going to do that again, definitely. Um, we, we, uh, it takes a lot of unique hops in that beer, and we ran out, but uh, we've uh, planted more acres of some of those varieties, and so we will do Hoptimum. We're debating it might be out year-round at, at some oh, point, but right wow. now we're not sure. So Okay.
2: All right. Any other questions
1: for these? Yes, sir. Go ahead.
0: Yes, I was going to ask a question about celebration, but I heard the hint
1: of a sour app. Is there an anticipation of a sour app coming out? Uh, there is. I said my my son is doing one with uh, with Vinny uh, at Russian River. They're not going to hear that.
2: What kind of, I'm sorry, can you say that again? It's... Okay, you're going to use the Brett? Okay. All right, so slightly controlled sour. It's Brett, okay, right on. Thank you. Yes, sir. Can you talk about your last anniversary,
1: ale and what your goal was? The Grand Cru? Um, I, just uh, you know, a little bit of history. Last year was our 30th anniversary and uh, we did four beers for sort of a celebration of our 30th year and and I, I've mentioned uh, Fritz Maytag at Anchor and I've mentioned Jack McAuliffe at New Albion and they were really instrumental in, in my opinion and I think most of the craft brewers that they really started the whole craft revolution in, in their own ways and so when I thought of what I should do for my 30th I thought well I should pay tribute to to those folks because they did give me a lot of help and they helped the kickstart the industry. So I did a, a beer with uh, Fritz uh, Maytag. The, the first beer we did in the series was a stout. I uh, did one with Jack McAuliffe. I uh, did another one with Charlie Papazian, who was head of this association, the brew association, uh, and Jack, or excuse me, and Fred Eckhart. And Fred Eckhart was a, a homebrew book writer that um, I got my hands on to in 1970, his first book. Uh, and then the fourth one was uh, the Grand Cru we did, which was a, a blend of barrel-aged Bigfoot uh, celebration uh, and a, a special pale ale that we blended together to try to create you know, a, a fairly robust and, and distinctive beer. Excellent.
2: Any other questions? Yes, ma'am.
1: Well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that craft brewers in America really have done a a huge service for the brewing community worldwide. I mean, we really have uh, opened the eyes of some traditional brewing countries that had lost their way sort of and had really uh, gotten into a fairly uh, monoculture uh, brewing style of of only doing, um, you know, light lager styles. Um, we played around and we continue to play around with a lot of different beer styles that you won't see out here because so we have a 10-barrel brewery, but we don't bottle and we don't distribute a lot of those beers. Uh, So we push the envelope in a bunch of different ways all the time, and we'll continue to do that. How many of those get to market? Um, That's a different question, Um, but uh, we we will hopefully continue to experiment. It's, It's a lot of the fun of brewing is doing those kinds of things. Uh, it's like cooking. If you you know just had macaroni and cheese every day, uh, you'd be pretty pretty bored with life. But um, so as brewers, we want to do you know interesting things and and uh, learn and and uh, you know discover new new styles and new beers. I've done a couple of collaborations uh, um, this past year. Um, Sam Caljone from Dogfish uh, came out. Well, we just brewed it again uh, a couple weeks ago. So Sam was out and we brewed some more Life and Limb, and then excuse me oh yeah okay yeah it's uh we've got some batches brewing right now and we're going to do some more and we'll blend them all together um and we've done some other fun projects uh that again aren't very widely distributed so i probably shouldn't even mention them but um, uh, we've done some some projects with some other brewers that that, uh, have been fun to do excellent
2: any other questions yes sir
1: Yes. Is there you can say about that? Sure. Um, you know, it's something we've been looking at for years. Actually, as we've as we've grown um, and our East Coast um, uh, volume has increased, shipping from Chico, California, to parts of the East Coast is, is really uh, you know, environmentally challenging. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, we've we've done as much as we can with. Uh, we ship most of our beer by rail, uh, refrigerated intermodal rail that gets there in five to, to seven days. Uh, so it's quick, but it still takes energy, and it still costs a lot of money. Um, so we are looking at, you know, what should we do long term to satisfy, you know, the need for the other half of the U.S., really. And so we're, we're looking at it seriously now. We haven't made a decision yet, but we are investigating that, the possibility. Which part of it? But yes, we. What can you do? We'll build the building. Build it and they will come, right?
2: Yes, one last question. Your uh, beer camp effort reminds me a lot of the Sam Adams Mm Logshot program that's been going on for many, many years. And I really
1: enjoyed those beers for a number of years. I guess my main question is do you see that continuing for you guys going forward? Yeah, again, we started the program as an educational tool to help retailers who don't, a lot of them don't understand a lot about beer. And, you know, our program is really two days of intensive uh, uh, brewing science and the, the whole ability to, you know, formulate a recipe, to come up with a concept and all that. Um, we'll continue to do it for sure. Whether or not we continue on the public side, it, it's been very well received. Uh, we've got this uh, very, very state-of-the-art 10-barrel brewery that uh, is better than or nicer than just about any other 10-barrel brewery in the world, and so we can do wonderful things there, and, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it, so I'm sure we'll continue it. Excellent.
2: We want to thank everybody for coming tonight. How about a hand for Father Thomas and Ken Grossman? You, Ken. Outstanding. We're so appreciative you're here at Saver. Please go out and enjoy the rest of the evening, and be sure and uh, share with all your friends. Cheers.
0: This podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. Find more information on Saver or further podcasts, visit craftbeerradio.com/saver or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.